Let's pause together in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear God speak through his word. Let's pray. Father, we turn in this study of Galatians to these verses. You have a message for us. You want us to hear you. You want to equip us to obey you. So, Lord, may we come to receive from your hand, to be blessed by your gift, to listen to your voice, to learn of you, to live for you, to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, we learned of the beautiful, intimate relationship the children of God are privileged to experience with their Abba, their Heavenly Father. All this because of the incarnation, because Jesus came into this world to redeem us, purchasing us with his precious blood shed upon the cross at Calvary. All that we might be adopted into God's family and so become his sons and heirs. For the apostle, there is this decisive moment or change when the Christian is no longer a slave but a son, verse 7 of chapter 4. And as we now continue to make our way through this fourth chapter, we note that Paul wants to reinforce this teaching. It's so vital for the believers in the churches of Galatia 2,000 years ago, and for the believers in the church today, that we understand our status before God. To do this, you need to assess your spiritual trajectory, your direction of travel, making where required by God's grace and the empowering of the Holy Spirit adjustments, noting what you were formerly, what you are currently and what you will be subsequently. Starting then with formerly, verse 7, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. The starting point is slavery. Without the intimate father-child relationship with God, every individual is in slavery to the spiritual powers of the world. Sadly, the problem for the vast majority of people is that they have no idea that they are slaves nor do they have any desire to find freedom. As Bob Dylan sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Of all people, in the past week, Russell Brand has shed some light on the spiritual realities of the world. In response to those who might claim that religion is manipulative and trying to control us, he said this. Do you think nationalism's not trying to tell you how to think? Do you think capitalism is not trying to tell you how to think? Do you think rationalism, materialism aren't telling you how to think? Do you think you're not trapped? If you think that you're free, the only way that you are free is the freedom to see that there is something to be beyond what you can normally see. And the only way we can access this is through prayer. End quote. Now, while there are all kinds of questions about Russell Brand's ultimate conclusions and his understanding of what prayer is, 
He can't be faulted for his unmasking of the truth that everyone's thinking, their philosophy or religion is dominated by powerful and controlling forces. And these powers, these influences are not benign. The God of this world, the devil is holding sinners captive to their heart. And such was the status of the Galatian Christians prior to their reception of the gospel, prior to their eyes being opened, open to see the ugliness of their sin and the beauty of the grace that is freely available in Jesus Christ. Formerly, they did not know God and they were slaves. Paul writes in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn back? Formerly, currently. Currently, you are known by God and your sons and heirs of God. Paul makes it clear that this radical transformation is only possible through a mighty and miraculous intervention by God. This amazing gospel good news is declared to the world. God loves you and he desires that you would be his child. He knows you and he desires to be known by you. As he prayed to his father, Jesus explained this truth in, in John 17 verse 3 in his great high priestly prayer, saying, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when Paul here writes of being known by God, he's referencing a deep and intimate relationship. I have 307 friends on Facebook, apparently. I think I know most of them reasonably well. And if I were to meet people on the street and to greet them by name, there are probably thousands of people who would be in that category. Thousands of people I could name if I saw them. And a few, I know I should, but my brain doesn't quite work properly. You might even say, of these people, I know them. But how many people can I tell you what they had for tea last night? Well, you can count that number on the fingers of one hand. Because my intimate knowledge of people is, is very limited. And to ask yourself, how many close friends do I have? You see, it's simply not possible to have a large number of close friends because that, that, that defies the definition. Close friends must be few in number since you have to know them intimately. Yet, our Heavenly Father has such an intimacy of relationship with myriads of people, millions upon millions throughout history. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul writes this, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Again, here's that word, known. And you have to always understand that this is speaking beyond a, a casual acquaintance to a deep, intimate knowledge. A knowledge of you that is greater than you have of yourself. God knows his children and he loves his children. And the core of the Christian's life 
And the basis for our assurance is not how much our hearts are set upon God, but how resolutely his heart is set upon us to know us and to love us. In his great little book, Jim Packer writes, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Knowing God, a fantastic little book and well worth a read. So this is the, the believer's spiritual trajectory. Formerly, not knowing God. Currently, being known by God. But for Paul... His central concern in writing this letter is, where next for the Christians? What will they be subsequently? Many years ago, we had a manse cat, a cat called Paws. Now, I hope you understand the way the mind of a cat works. Cats believe they rule the world. Cats don't have owners, they have staff. And this understanding helps you to interpret a cat's behaviour. On a particular lunchtime, Liz and I sat down to share lunch with our youth worker at that time, Melindine, and the three of us bowed together to give thanks for our meal. And then, whereupon opening our eyes, we discovered that Paws had decided to join us for lunch and to come into the dining room and not only to be there, but to bring her own contribution to the meal, a dead rabbit with the blood dripping out of it. What was Paws doing? She was behaving instinctively, believing that as the ruler of the world, we were dependent upon her and she had to provide for us. She wasn't prepared just to be a pet and to be fed and cared for by her owners. No, she was going to give us a gift. She was going to meet our need. She was going to pay her own way. And in a, in a sense, this is what was happening in Galatia 2,000 years ago. And this is what is prone to happen in our hearts today. We, we may be saved by grace. We may enter into this father-child relationship where God sets his love upon us. But then. We foolishly believe it's entirely up to us to maintain that relationship. We convince ourselves that we have to engage in the appropriate religious practices in adequate measure. Otherwise, God's love will be lost to us because it depends on us and we must pay our way. And Paul warns and speaks severely, declaring that to merit and maintain your own salvation through religious practice, 
is just as much an enslavement as paganism. As one commentator notes, for Paul, whatever leads one away from sole reliance on Christ, whether based on good intentions or depraved ideas, is sub-Christian and therefore to be condemned. Paul is suggesting here that all the very good things that rightly and eagerly we encourage one another to do to develop our walk with God, if misunderstood and misused, have the potential to enslave us. Indeed, It's not too much of a stretch to say that Paul is telling us here that they can be demonic. Even things like reading the Bible, attending church services, going to prayer meetings, all of this can be extremely detrimental to our spiritual health if if we believe this is what it takes to please God. If We convince ourselves that through these, we are making a substantial contribution to our right standing before him. Such things offered to God as a sacrifice are as welcome to him as a dead rabbit was deposited on the dining room carpet in our house. To add our religious work to the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, is to choose slavery instead of sonship. The Galatians and we need to be reminded that it's not the practice of religion for God, but the personal relationship with God through Christ, living in utter dependence upon him. This is what really matters. Now, it's not that they were going back to their pagan temples and to the worship of idols of stone or wood. Rather, they are losing their freedom to religious practices that are found in the Bible, since they were engaging in them for the wrong reasons. It says, Robbie was telling the boys and girls that there are two ways to make a hole in a plank of wood, with the repeated use of a red-hot poker, or for a few seconds with a pardrill. One way, long and laborious, the other way, swift and simple. It's as if the Galatians were saying to themselves, yes, I've tried the pardrill, but I think God would be more pleased with me if I do it the hard way with a red-hot poker. He'll through this realize how committed I am, and when he discovers how hard I'm determined to work to please him, he, he, he will delight that I'm paying him back for his gift of salvation. What a ridiculous way to think. And yet, this pattern captures our hearts so repeatedly. In these last few sermons, I find my mind going back time and time again to the familiar parable of the prodigal son. Because it so effectively illustrates the points that Paul is striving to make. He needs us to understand that while there's only one way to be found, There are two ways to be lost. The religious person is just as lost as the irreligious person. Indeed, it's clear in that parable that it is more dangerous to be the older brother because he doesn't realize 
that he has a problem that keeps him from an intimate relationship and dependence upon his father. See, your self-righteous works of obedience, your slavish observance of days, months, seasons, and years keeps you from that necessary reliance upon Christ because it's only his perfect obedience that sets your relationship with God, your Father, aright. We have learned this already, and it will be a lesson repeated for us, that the law is good as a guide, but worthless as a saviour. It can diagnose the problem, but it cannot give us the cure. It reveals what is right, but it cannot make us right. Jesus has fully, finally, and forever achieved that for us on the cross. And our task is to receive it and to rest in it. Jesus invites us to take his yoke upon us because it's easy and light. In his new book, Gentle and Lowly, Dean Ortland illustrates It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver only to hear him shout back sputtering, no way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. End quote. Christianity is a religion of sons, not slaves. The gospel raises you up. It doesn't drag you down. So what is your spiritual trajectory? What will you be subsequently? Will you be experiencing ever deepening delight in your relationship with your heavenly father? Or will you find yourself increasingly crushed by the burden of religious practice because you can never do enough to purchase what has already been freely given to you? Augustine penned this beautiful prayer. And we close with this. O God, you are the light of the minds that know you. The joy of the hearts that love you and the strength of the wills that serve you. Grant us to know you that we may truly love you and so to love you that we may fully and freely serve you. Whose service is perfect freedom in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would chart before us that clear path of utter dependence upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us if we come bearing in our hands the filthy rags of our righteous works, hoping in some way that we might merit the love that already is fully ours in him. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when Our religious practice becomes burdensome when we do it merely out of empty duty and not out of a heart's delight. Lord, as we engage in those regular spiritual disciplines to which you call us, 
to read your word, to pray, to, to worship together when that opportunity affords itself. May it be something that thrills our souls because it helps us to spend more intimate time with our loving Father. Lord, may our faith ever be a blessing and never be a burden. May it ever be our delight and never be merely our duty. Father, we thank you that you know us. And knowing us intimately, you love us infinitely. May we learn to love you more as we come to know you better, as we're drawn deeper towards your heart through Christ our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.